G'day and welcome to episode 11 of Safety at Work Talks. My name is Kevin Jones. This episode is part two of my keynote presentation to the Heads of Workplace Safety Authorities Inspectors Forum in Tasmania recently. This podcast is an edited version of the second half of that presentation. This time I discuss the primary duty of care, the role of unions, the new work structures um, like uh, the gig economy, industrial manslaughter laws, the need to operate um, in a coordinated cooperative method across disciplines and organisations. I also talk about notifiable psychological incidents and also a little bit about supply chains. I hope you enjoy the next uh, 15, uh, 20 minutes of my presentation to the Hausa. But before I leave resilience, I also want to point out some of the speakiness of the language. Resilience is often framed in terms of empowerment, encouraging people to take control of their work, their work environment, their working hours and conditions. And some people are able to do this, but many cannot. And it is often those who cannot who need extra support for their OHS needs. The flip side of empowerment is that the level of responsibility and accountability may be expected of the individual, which should, in reality, be held by the PCBU or employer. We've seen the business response to the unresilient or weak employee before when companies would blame the worker. That phrase was common in OHS and industrial relations in the 80s, less so now, but the attitude remains. It's so-and-so's fault that they can't keep up with the line speed, I keep telling him what to do, but he still doesn't get it. He's useless. Or, I've tried everything. Resilience training, counselling, mentoring, and they're just not up to it. Can we performance manage them out? The avoidance of corporate responsibility for OHS seems as strong now as it ever was, but it's couched in different terms. It seems common in OHS for old concepts and hazards to be refashioned to imply that they are new or emerging. And this is okay most times but it can also mask, or be used to mask the historical success or failures of those approaches. The harmonisation of OHS laws, which has largely failed to provide a level of uniformity that had been aimed for since the early 90s, provided one major change, the focus on work rather than workplaces. This had such potential and seemed to address the changing work circumstances at the time, which were largely expected to be working from home or teleworking, from the Qantas Lounge, for those of you with plenty of frequent fire points. But the focus on work hasn't matched the structural change epitomised by Uber and others. Harmonisation thought that work would still be linked to specific locations, work, home, cafe, Qantas Lounge, but the new work structures are fragmented across the country. Uber drivers may never visit the Uber office, if there even is such a thing. The relationship with their employer is purely electronic. The current and future workplace will literally be anywhere. How the hell is anyone going to inspect this work to ensure OHS compliance? The gig economy structures have introduced a new system of work. This means that OHS and WHS laws still apply and remain relevant. But we're not sure how to verify the duties are being followed and, and who holds the primary duty of care. Trade unions and others are trying to squeeze these new systems of work into the old industrial relations structures. In many ways, this is an attempt to maintain existing power structures and connections of influence. But it may be that these new structures have inverted the legislative duties. 
OHS legislation still has the primary duty of care with a PCBU or employer. But these new companies and structures deny they are PCBUs or employers. Well, let's take it that they're right. Who has the primary duty of care? Who is responsible for the safety and health of workers in this new world? WHS laws could include a tech company as a PCBU who influences or directs a person's work activities. But that company will fight tooth and nail not to be a PCBU because that level of responsibility or influence does not fit their business model. As discussed above, OHS was not part of the design of their business. We cannot even say if they wanted to avoid their OHS obligations. It's likely that OHS was never even considered in the first place. But this is not a new situation. Several states have had licensed brothels for many years. These arguments, denying they have employees and that all sex workers are contractors because the Australian Taxation Office says they are, are still being made. If you want to understand the new gig economy, look at the old sex economy. The OHS relationships are the same. Like the brothel owners, someone will spend years and years arguing that OHS is not their responsibility. And in the meantime, workers in that sector are being injured or harmed, or hurting and harming others, and no one knows where to go to fix it. Perhaps the primary duty has shifted to the worker, who must take reasonable care for their own health and safety and make sure that their acts or omissions do not adversely affect the health and safety of others. Perhaps we should accept that the WHS legislation is really public safety legislation for when work is involved. And if we accepted the primary duty of the worker and the public safety role of WHS, what does that make the WorkSafe inspector? Inspectors and others used to be disparagingly called safety police. I know one consultant who was referred to as the sheriff, as he would saunter into the workplace and say, where's your hard hat? Tie up your shoelaces, get off that ladder. <coughs> well, the gay rights movement learned that it was possible to rebrand criticisms into words Queer used to be derogatory, but now it's a term many use to describe themselves and their community. What if we took safety police and turned it into a term of empowerment, or at least a description that better reflects the inspector's role and expectations on the community? Why not be the safety police? Various inquiries recently have heard arguments that workplace fatalities should not be investigated by worksafe inspectors, but by the state police. The consensus seems to be that this role will stay with inspectors. I think we heard that yesterday from either the coroner or one of the lawyers. But the discussion reflects the community, that, that the community dissatisfaction with the OHS investigation processes and outcomes and potential follow-up prosecutions. It's useful to take such a discussion out of coronial instead of inquiries and workshop it. Is there some benefit in having hybrid investigation specialists who are part OHS and part police? who could benefit from skills and authority from both legislative sectors. Perhaps instead of asking why, uh, uh, of asking why, we should be asking why not. We often complain that the management of safety operates in silos, and there is no structure more siloed than when we limit ourselves for our own legislation and regulations. We can't go there because that's the Crimes Act, or we can't go there because that's, uh, that's OHS, do you really think that the families of dead workers care which legislation is used to provide justice? Australia's trade union movement 
is pushing for the introduction of industrial mass law laws. And with the ALP win in Victoria this weekend, Victoria will have these laws probably within 12 months. The trade unions talk about the need to obtain justice for the relatives of deceased workers and the need to hold those accountable for their negligent decisions that lead to death. Anyone who has dealt with workplace fatalities or talked with relatives will understand this desire for answers. Why was my husband killed? Why did you place my son at such a risk? Why didn't you repair the truck? Why did you not supply the right type of EWP? The recent Senate inquiry into industrial deaths addressed these types of questions and supported industrial manslaughter laws. The South Australian coroner's findings into the death of Jorge Castillo Mifo, who was crushed between the railing of a scissor lift and the concrete slab above, wouldn't recommend industrial manslaughter laws, but was very critical of Safe Work SA. In fact, Safe Work SA must feel like the whipping boy at the moment with the coronial findings and an inquiry by our state's ICAP. Mm. You might have heard of that. I think Martin talked about it yesterday. But how would our industrial manslaughter laws work in the new work structures epitomised by the gig economy? Could it work? Is this the focus, the best use of our time? Perhaps time would be better spent accepting the way the gig economy is already working and evolving and anticipating how the WHS laws could continue to apply. This conversation doesn't seem to be happening. Perhaps instead of trying to contain the gig economy structures, we should spend time understanding them and seeing how we can make OHS fit. I've mentioned the trade union movement, and it's not insignificant that union membership has continued to decline over the last decade or so. The trade unions have tried all sorts of strategies to revive membership without <coughs> success. This could be because the trade union structures and strategies won't fit with these new work structures. At some point, the trade union movement will, re will realise that it needs a complete restructure if it wants to continue having some influence on government OHS policy. I suspect this will only occur when its membership reaches the same level as minor political parties like Pauline Hanson's One Nation. In some states, Pauline gets close to 10% of the vote. Trade union membership is down to 14% national. The trade unions have been a major influence on OHS. Some would say the major influence. They've emphasised emerging risks like asbestos, silicosis, bullying, and stress, among others. And we should never question the legacy. But that shouldn't stop us wondering whether we need to deal with them on OHS matters in the same way we did last century. <coughs> Tripartite consultation has provided them with a seat at the table of influence, but increasingly, trade unions seem to represent their members where they used to represent all workers. Who or what will be the powerful OHS influences in the future? I mentioned silos earlier, and we need to think about these a little bit more. It's established that the most effective way to address workplace health and safety issues is through a multidisciplinary approach, largely because there are a lot of factors that can contribute to the cause of an incident. There may still remain a principal cause of an incident, like gravity, but the organisation, operational and social context may have created a situation in which the cause or action was, if not unavoidable, understandable. Inspectors deal with organisational silos all the time. So-and-so is in charge of that process. Those documents are held by so-and-so. Wait, no, no, she knows how it works. I'll go and get her. It's necessary to have a basic understanding of how all this fits with that business's specific system of work or culture. But it's also useful to look at the bigger regulatory picture where government authorities are structured to support specific laws. There are institutional and jurisdictional demarcations 
that impede the effective investigation of incidents and limit the application of laws in the ways the community expects them to operate. Rarely do citizens differentiate between inspectors of this agency or inspectors of that one. They see you as representatives of the government. They are not tolerant of the demarcations imposed by legislation or enforcement strategies. They will ask, and they continue to ask, can you do something about that? Oh, ah, sorry. That comes under the blah blah act, and I enforce the WHS Act. You'll have to call so-and-so about that. We wonder why they're dissatisfied. This structural demarcation may be how it is, how it is at the moment and how it has evolved. But why does it have to continue to be that way? It's often easiest to anticipate the future by learning from the past. In the 1990s, when I worked in the uh, OHS authority, um, the authority established a hazardous chemicals audit team. This team focused on dangerous goods and hazardous chemicals and coordinated surprise visits to work sites, including whichever agencies had some jurisdictional relevance. These teams would often include OSHA, the Environment Protection Authority, the local council, perhaps the Road Traffic Authority, the Fire Brigade, the Department of Health, and others. Businesses were provided with a day's notice about the coordinated visit the next day. The HCAT visits were often overwhelming because the business owner was faced with a team of inspectors who would walk the site and provide advice or notices on a range of hazards within the site. It was overwhelming, but also effective, in that the business owner had a detailed picture of their compliance or non-compliance. Of course, not everything had to be fixed right away, but the proprietor had a clear idea of what needed to be done. What the HCAT team showed me was that no one needed to be an expert on everything. It was possible to pool expertise into a team that could advise and enforce and provide a comprehensive understanding on health and safety in a short amount of time. It was possible, perhaps not, perhaps not to break down the silos, but to coordinate those silos into an effective audit team. And I'm looking beyond agencies, it's not just to internal experts. Over the time, the knowledge silos between the inspectors of those agencies began to erode so that uh, I think they became better inspectors because they understood the broader context of uh, work-related and public uh, safety and health regulations and better understood the safety complexities faced by the employers and the PCBUs. Many businesses were uncomfortable with this approach because I believe it was over overwhelming, but it also satisfied the common desire of most business owners and, and employers who say, just tell me if I comply. Could such a program operate now or in the future? Well, I can't see why not. And there's likely to be technology that could help make this coordination much more efficient. In the 90s, information was sent between the HCAT teams and business owners by fax. Does anybody remember faxes? <laughs> I'm sure that we could do better than uh, the pre-digital 1990s. One of the most neglected and misunderstood legislative duties is consultation. I think this was touched on yesterday in the afternoon session. Consultation has been defined, redefined, and clarified by all jurisdictions over decades, but it continues to be a problem, primarily because it requires respect for each other and active listening, and it cuts across the command and control structures that most businesses operate on. Our OHS laws still incorporate a fairly rigid consultative structure of designated work groups, health and safety reps, and committees. How does this work when we now have work structures where one can operate without talking with or ever meeting your employer or PCBU. These consultative structures are almost a prefax 
and are based on a belief that trade unions have a massive influence in every workplace in Australia. Now recently some unions have tried virtual models where there are no physical union organisers and members, uh, and members are provided with templates and other information on how to talk with their employers about industrial matters of pay and employment conditions. This model acknowledges that new work structures don't fit the traditional union operations. I should add that the union fee structure is also substantially different and cheaper. This informs the worker on how to consult and the principal issue to raise, for there is no union organiser standing next to them in support. It may be worth wondering if some of your inspection duties can be handled by a virtual inspector. <laughs> you also may want to ask yourself whether you need to be physically present to inspect a workplace. I suspect that some of your duties could be handled through Skype or FaceTime. Recently, FaceTime was updated to allow for simultaneous communication with around 30 participants at the same time. No need for conference facilities in the boardroom where everyone, uh, when everyone has a smartphone. All OHS regulators have an advisory line or a phone number for people who report hazards and request an inspector's attendance. Please tell me that at least one regulator encourages these callers to text in photos or videos of a hazard or incident. Does anybody do that? If they can submit videos of a hazard, why does an inspector have to physically attend in response? Could this issue be handled online? Am I running close to time? Close to time. Okay. Most, noticeable, uh, most OHS legislation includes a list of notifiable incident types. These lists have been fairly stable for years and address serious or traumatic injuries. If, as many OHS people claim, we should treat incidents of work-related psychological harm in a similar manner to serious physical injuries, surely the list of notifiable incidents should be expanded to include psychological incidents. I can't think of an argument against this expansion, except that it will involve a huge amount of work and will challenge how we think of serious incidents. But I can see some advantages, such as OHS regulators will have some hard data on which they can base intervention strategies. HR people will engage with the OHS regulator rather than only looking for solutions through fair work. But we will need to determine what is a serious psychological incident. Please let me know if any of you are already discussing this at your workplace, I'd be fascinated to know. Many people have urged me to research and write about OHS in supply chains. And I've largely kept away from the topic because it's so big and complex. And I think there are very few in the OHS sector who are in a good place to comment on. Uh, partly because the supply chain is so crucial to the operations of society. There are so many players in it. <clears throat> partly because one should have a good understanding of economics and business to really understand the supply chain's role and its technicalities. But there are some general comments I can make. Some equate contemporary discussions on supply chains to the traditional approach, approach to contract and management. Well, these overlap, but I'm not sure that they're the same and the reference points differ. Some are looking at supply chains as a local iteration of the usually global concept of corporate social responsibility. They are applying global connection structures to local structures. And I'm not convinced that global can translate to local. And CSR continues and contains a lot of marketing information and not a lot of performance benchmarking or program evaluations. I like to argue that an employer's duty of care is already an example of corporate social responsibility. And if we had applied CSR to our own operations, rather than only imposing them on the sports shoe factories in China and the clothing manufacturers in Asia, more generally, our workplaces in Australia would be safer and our understanding of OHS and supply chains would be much clearer. 
Supply chains exist within the normal business structures and operate on each step of the delivery and manufacturing processes. By covering the costs of the previous link in the chain and making a profit from the next link in the chain. It's almost entirely a capitalist and economic relationship in which OHS exists to ensure that that product or service moves to the next link in the supply chain. The safety of that link or of that method, or the person who's moving the product, is not generally considered important. Supply chains are a good example of how the profit motive overrides any health and safety motive. Any plan to increase the role of OHS in supply chains will need to counter political pressures that reflect the profit motives of those who financially benefit from the supply chain operators. So I think I've fulfilled most of the event briefs that I mentioned at the start, but I want to leave you with some other things to think about. Challenge these cliches and business bullshit every time you hear them. Now when I say challenge, question them. So if you hear somebody say something, ask the question, oh, what do you mean by that? Or do you have any evidence of that? So it's a gentle challenge. So the cliches that I think you should challenge, that I try to challenge is, safety is our number one priority. People are our greatest asset. Or so-and-so is the safest state in Australia. That's a good one. Australia is getting safer because the number of fatalities is declining. And also the cliche of what? of world's best practice. Victoria is removing its urban railways to level crossings. Many people have died at these crossings over many, many years. A parliamentary inquiry said removal was too expensive. But within a decade, 29 level crossings have been removed because the evaluation of the risk was recalibrated and the calculation of cost was expanded. Lives will be saved through the elimination of level crossings. But the number of deaths was not the principal motivator. Should we be looking at calibrating our own estimates of workplace health and safety costs? Major legislative change in OHS almost always comes after disasters. Is this connection likely to change in the future? And Australia's, <coughs> and Australia's OHS laws are based on a model, the Robins model. And that's coming up to 50 years old. Is this still the model that will work best in the 21st century. Thanks for your time. So thanks for listening to part two of my presentation to the Hauser Inspectors Forum. If you enjoy what you've heard here, please consider uh, following the Safety at Work blog, where many of the issues raised in these podcasts are further explained and examined. The URL is safetyatworkblog.com or simply internet search and google safety at work blog i'm sure will come up the uh, the blog does operate uh, on a subscription model but uh, there are regular articles that are made freely available for those who choose not to subscribe so uh, please uh, if you follow you'll get notified by email each time each time there is a new article posted so i hope you've enjoyed this podcast uh, it was terrific to go down to tasmania and speak to a, a room of 80 to 100 inspectors um, it was quite uh, quite revealing and quite exciting so my name is still kevin jones and thank you for listening and i hope you join us again soon